Welcome to the Working Hands Podcast. I'm Tony of Woodland Iron, joined by Keith of Blackthorn Concepts. And tonight we have two special guests. We have Will and Eldad of Smelt Team 6. What's going on, boys? How you doing? Good, how are you? What's going on, Hyatt? I'd like to take the time to thank Sabretooth, our sponsor. If you go to sabretooth.com, you can save 10% on all your carving burrs and discs by using the code WH on your order. Uh, I use them. You should, too. <laughs> And I'll take a moment to thank our sponsor, Maritime Nice Supply, your one-stop shop for makers, your home for abrasives, steel, tools, and more. Save on shipping by getting everything from one supplier. You can find him at maritimenicesupply.com and .ca. Did, did I just do that without screwing anything up? <laughs> I, for one, am yeah. shocked. <laughs> that might be a first. It possibly is. They're all recorded, so we, we could figure that out. Yeah. <laughs> to the statistics. Yeah. So I'm batting like 10. <laughs> out of what, 3,000? Oh, no. We're two, or we're 120 episode-ish, somewhere in there. Yeah, there's so. a couple extra episodes that we didn't actually number. But yeah, we're at like 120, right. 122. Yeah, I don't think they do batting averages in hockey. No, <laughs> no. There's there's save percentage for goalies, which I am a goalie, so fair. I actually didn't know you played hockey. Yep. Uh, well, I mean, I never played very high level hockey, but I I, pl- I picked up hockey after high school, which is kind of weird for most people. But yeah, I decided I I like to play net. I played ball hockey and stuff um, when I was younger, and then uh, yeah, decided to try skates on and played ever since and they've been playing yeah probably playing 20 plus years now nice i'm getting i can barely use my two feet so i mean putting skates on is a dangerous activity (laughs) yeah it's dangerous (laughs) for a lot of people had i known i would have brought a couple of couple of sticks over to uh maker's camp where would you play though in the mud yeah you know we were already (laughs) i might as well get tony dirty Yeah, that's possible. We we were in the Woodstock area, so yeah. And to so think, what's going on with you guys? Mud wrestling, not much. We're still uh, still kind of recovering from Maker's Camp. Yeah, it's a wild ride that Maker's Camp. Yeah, I feel you there. I'm like a day, or I just got back to work today, so I had a lot of vacation on either side of uh, camp, and yeah, it was nice to get back to work actually. Well, with that said, we don't want people thinking you had too much vacation. We're recording this the weekend after camp. Yeah, we're we're book bookend pretty tight to camp well, right now. So you guys are recording it the weekend after. I'm in Monday. Oh yeah. I, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how you're doing this at three thirty in the morning, but yeah. uh, God, uh, God bless you. I don't know. And fifty five hundred miles away. Yeah, I was gonna say you're our first uh overseas conversation now oh really yeah i was wondering yes. about that yeah we've never uh yeah i guess we've never attempted it because we've never really wanted to push anybody into these late hours or push ourselves to be earlier so but we maybe we'll yeah, do our it schedules now. make it tough there's a couple people in england i'd like to get on but yeah, yeah i mean this is uh, uh unless unless they have uh unless they're idiots like i am pretty much <laughs> You guys do smelt iron for fun, so. <laughs> well, yeah, I didn't say we were smart. So what made you guys start doing that? I know we don't do the origin stories of most makers. Oh, but, yeah, this is different. But so, to want to start smelting on your own, like, wh- like why? Is so it it's just... actually an interesting story, kind of. Um, you're from Jackson, Keith, so you might actually know it. But um, over uh, near Howell, New Jersey... There's a um, there's a historic ironworks village, a lair. I don't know if you've okay. ever heard of it. I, I know it. Okay. Anyway, so we times. all worked there or volunteered there, I guess, as uh, blacksmiths. And there was the big blast furnace there. And eventually we were kind of like, why don't we try doing that? Okay. And well, then that, that just... was after we were like, why don't we fire up the blast furnace? And the director was like, no, Willie, you're an idiot. I've <laughs> <laughs> seen the blast furnace. I... I I've probably watched you guys blacksmith there. I've been there a number of times over the years. But did you ever fire that furnace up or no? 
Oh no, the EPA would have a heart attack. This is a thirty-six <laughs> foot tall black furnace. Yeah, it's huge. Oh wow. Yeah, it takes a. I think in a typical run, it would have gone through about two tons of of charcoal. So you're saying we can fire this up next spring? <laughs> I'm saying Maybe. meet me out there tomorrow. Oh wow. Well, two tons of charcoal, like that's like that's a large volume. Like charcoal is not very heavy by like piece by piece. So speaking from experience, two tons would be about four full pallets. Wow. Yeah, that's a lot. Yeah, I've got I've got two pallets in my backyard right now. So that's <laughs> twenty five hundred pounds. So, you know, it gives me some perspective. I gotcha. <laughs> but yeah, I mean Part of it was working with the wrought iron and the bloomery iron and the history involved, but the other part was we were exposed to it because we worked for that museum. That makes sense. Uh, I didn't actually, I kind of came into the team a little bit later. It kind of started with um, uh, Will and his brother Tim and uh, a few other people that were there. Um, I actually came in a little bit later. uh, And then I think right before I came, they actually did a couple smelt demonstrations at a lair. That's cool. Very cool. So who started Smelt Team 6? Is it Will and his brother? Um, so Smelt Team 6 <laughs> got its start um, after that. We okay. weren't actually Smelt Team 6 officially yet. Uh, up until fairly recently, actually. Maybe only a few years ago by now. Um. Yeah. Before, we were just kind of smelting for smelting's sake. But just because you wanted to do it. There was no like, oh, let's do this and do demonstrations at, at at the village. It was kind of like just to prove to yourself that you could do it? Pretty much. I mean, how many how many people still are doing it like on their own, the old school way like you guys? As far as I can gather, talking to other makers that I've gotten contact with, maybe a thousand in the world. At least ones that publish their work on social media or the like. All right. That makes sense, I guess. But that's not many. No, it's not. Millions of people in the world. Um, there's, there's quite a few of them, um, I guess you could say, in the Western Hemisphere. But for the most part, they seem to be gathered around where the furnaces were originally built, <laughs> spread through um, Scandinavia and England and parts of northern europe and every once in a while you see a couple of the uh um eastern furnaces um pop up all sorts of places like the philippines and uh mongolia are they doing it on a large scale or more like you guys for the most part no uh it's not an easy thing to do on a large scale it it takes a lot of physical and mental effort to be honest yeah i could see that I mean, just watching you guys work is exhausting. I'm just watching. Yeah, and then you go over and talk to them, and that's even more exhausting. Oh, very exhausting. <laughs> I'm still confused as to how the two of you are on this podcast today. <laughs> uh, well, Tony came up to Will and uh, said, hey, come to the podcast. And then Eldad said, okay, I'll do it too. And then Eldad got to the other side of the world and for some reason kept doing it. I'm surprised <laughs> you're doing it. You're a trooper. <laughs> but yeah, we, we talked about getting you guys on last year after Maker Camp. So I'm glad we were able to just like push through and make it happen this year. Well, that was funny because last year we kind of like said it in passing. Like, you know, you're doing your goodbyes. It's like, hey, we should do this. And like, you know, lives caught up with us. And But this year we're like, yes, let's let's get this done. Yeah. Well, we meant it last year. Just takes us a year to schedule it. That's all. Well, it takes us a year to remember it. Well. Yeah. Tony's being quiet over there. Tony does the scheduling. Yes, I try and do the scheduling. <laughs> uh, yeah, you guys are definitely we're definitely on the list, and then just never, never seem to never seem to come forward in my brain to send you guys a message. So, but yeah, after after seeing you guys again at camp, I was like, we got to get them on. This is too much fun talking to you guys. So, I mean, we're uh, we're generally a fairly talkative group. Um, for the most part, we're all around the same age, fairly young ish in numbers, but old in body, <laughs> I guess you could say. Yeah. I don't know. There's enough of an age gap that every time I talk to Tom, I feel like, you know, I'm 
basically halfway in the ground. <laughs> I could see that. He's uh <laughs> he's an interesting kid. But you can tell he's a kid. <laughs> well, so uh, I was going to say I I just recently picked up um a power hammer and I invited Tom down to help me, you know, get it all set up and um you know, running and everything and while he was there, we came to the realization that I started blacksmithing when he was seven and I started blacksmithing in my twenties. I'm like, Oh my God, I feel old. How old are you now? I'm 32. So you're not old. No, we had, we had this conversation at camp. So me and Keith are both, well, I'm just about, yeah, we're grown. We're 10 years older than you. So that's not that bad. You say that now, wait until the 10 years from your age to our age is old. (laughs) (laughs) I, st- I still feel pretty good, but, uh, yeah, there's days where it's like, Ooh, I get that old man grunt getting up out of a chair every now and again. I'm like, God damn it. Would you stop doing that? You're not that bad, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, it happens. It's not every day, but it, the days in between are getting closer and closer to the old man grunt. Yeah. Or the, or the, well, and then you slap yourself on the legs <laughs> to like get motivated to move. And then it's like, ah, oh, damn it. So. so it's actually kind of funny that we uh we ended up bringing up age because most of the team for besides Tom uh is right around the same age give or take a few years um, yeah and we've actually uh, had a lot of comments from people um that they they don't usually see people around our age group doing something like that yeah I would see that I could see that I'm having trouble following what the smelt team six is. I know Will. I've never known his name, but I know Will's brother. He's the weird no. one. Yeah. Okay. As Chris Cash likes to constantly remind him. Okay. Yeah. I he's I'll he's leave Mur- that for Chris Cash to say. He's Murdoch. Murdoch. Then there's Face, who's Gnome Hammer. Right. right. Yep. Eldad. So now we got four. Then there's Tom, who yeah. I don't think I've ever met, right? Tom was there with us last year for yeah. uh Makers Camp. So you definitely met him. I only met the two brothers and Ryan. Okay, so he was at the smelt area. You may not yeah. have met him, but he was there. Yeah. Who's yeah, number he's... six? Uh, Matt. Never met Matt either. He hasn't been coming around to a few events. He's had a he's had a kid, so uh, he's been pretty busy with that. Um, if we end up doing uh, another demonstration at a Big Blue next year, next spring, when they have their hammer in, he'll probably be there. It's only a few hours drive from him. Nice. Yeah, Tom's a big kid. Like he's he's a large man and baby faced. That is that is the best way to describe describe him with the blonde, puffy kind of beard. Have you ever I seen also his license? Him, oh god. Well, it's probably brand new and shiny, so <laughs> Well, on his license he doesn't have facial hair. Oh really? Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's that's fun. <laughs> yeah, next next time you see him, uh, take a look. It's the funniest thing. He looks twelve. Yeah, I'm pretty sure you shave that beard off, and he looks twelve <laughs> right now. <laughs> yeah, he's the one I called B. A. Baracus. He's because uh, I I once when I met you guys, I mean Eldad, you weren't there, but last year I, I like I, for some reason decided to start naming you guys after the A team because it just seemed like I got up there and it was. Um, it was your brother, Tim was back in the truck up to the, to the furnace and the way you guys were going on and you're like, we're not sure he can drive. And I'm thinking, man, that sounds like it just, for some reason stuck in my head. And I was like, that's Murdoch. Like, he's just a crazy guy. Like he's just crazy, foolish, but gets, gets shit done. So that's, that's, that's kind of where it got started. And then I just had to start like adding to it as, as. As I met everybody. Uh, I mean, I would say the everyone on the team is uh, a little bit of a Murdoch in that case. Oh, you're all characters. There's no doubt about it. It just the A team doesn't have six characters, so it's kind of it doesn't. It, so right. it doesn't work. Smelt Smelt Team Six is perfect. I just I just enjoy adding to it. <laughs> it's fair. Cast of characters. So yes. <laughs> I have to do it because not everyone knows, but. Um, we keep talking about smelt team. Can one of you guys run us through what smelt team is and what smelting is just for the listeners that don't know 
you know, the listeners, I know, I know the process. I have it down pat, but for the listeners, can you run through what you guys do? <laughs> that's so crazy. I mean, I, I, I could do it, but I figure I'll let one of you guys go through the, the process so that our listeners know what we mean when we say smelting. So without going into a lot of science, right, we don't the, need the, the science. The, the, we, yeah, high level. Well, I, I'm, I'm worried you wouldn't understand that anyway. So, um, the, the, the simple <laughs> is we're basically using, you know, a thousand year old plus technology, uh, with a clay furnace to burn charcoal and iron ore or rocks, uh, that have iron in them, um, down into a, a usable forgeable steel. It's not, casting where you get it up to a full liquid but the the bloom of iron or the the piece of iron that comes out of the bottom is completely forgeable right out of it um it was the way the the japanese made their iron it was the way the vikings made their iron uh pretty much any of that technology besides the chinese they they actually did a blast furnace which was getting up to liquid um, that was the way everyone was making their, their steel or iron. Is there any benefit to that style iron creation, the way you guys do it, than blasting it to a liquid? Is there a benefit to it or is it just a different process? It's just a different process altogether, to be honest. Um, when it comes to, um, basically the, the process that we do is it's, it's usable right out. You don't have to reduce carbon. You don't have to, um, take out really too many impurities because as you consolidate it, most of them are coming out anyways. Um, the furnace type that we use specifically is mostly found in Scandinavian parts of England. Um, but it's, it's a similar process to a lot of, um, a lot of iron making process in that era. Okay. That's cool. Now the ore is it ore iron ore that you use. There's a cool story behind the iron ore that you guys use, right? Well, for our demonstrations, yes. Uh, yeah, we, we, use a, we use a lot of different ores, but our specific demonstration ore, we, um, we use the same iron ore that Bethlehem was using in their gigantic steel stacks. So it's been uh, processed in a way that it basically pelletizes it. Uh, it's called taconite, uh, but it... For us, it works phenomenally. We've run it so much that we know exactly how it runs. Uh, and the history behind it is even cooler for us. So we have some connection to where America had this, the, you know, the steel uh, foundries. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah, I mean, so, uh, Bethlehem Steel, um, they made, at one point, steel for just about every major structure and construction in the U.S. I mean... The, the Empire State Building, the World Trade Center, all of those were made out of I-beams that came out of Bethlehem Steel. So we're using the same ore, and it's really cool to be a small part of that history. So Bethlehem Steel, is that in the Jersey area? But for some reason, I think it's in, is it in Maine? Like I, no, I it's in Pennsylvania. It oh, it's Pennsylvania, okay. It's like, what, 30 minutes off the Jersey border? Just about, yeah. Yeah, roughly. Uh, yeah it's like northeast Pennsylvania. Okay, cool. I've heard that. I've heard that name before, but it's, uh, for some reason, oh, I think I'm getting confused with. Um, I think it's Bath uh, Ship Shipbuilding. That's Maine, I believe. That's in Maine. That's what I'm thinking. That's what's got me in Maine, like heavy industry that's in Maine. But Bethlehem Steel, I haven't been there since they did like the renovation, and it's like I don't know what it is, but you can go there now. Have you been there? Uh, it's, yeah, it's pretty cool actually. So there's. There's a museum um, at, that was one of the old Bethlehem buildings. It's the uh, National Museum of Industrial History. That's it. So they have, like, they have some weird stuff, like the first refrigeration system that came over to America. It was specifically made for brewing beer. That's perfect. Yeah, I mean, what else is more American? Uh, but yeah, like I said, they have some they have some really cool machinery in there, and it's all based on the machines. Um, they're Smithsonian affiliate. They do a lot of cool stuff, but then they also have uh, the catwalks up by the steel stacks. So they had five blast furnaces with rail cars literally coming right into um, the the smelting areas, where they would unload the rail car and load it right into the buckets that went up to the furnace. It's crazy. It, it's big industry compared to 
what we do. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, that's, we, does that also lean into why you've chosen that style of, of, uh, of furnace to use? Like where it's something that you can, it's mobile. You basically build it there. Like, is that, that lean into it too? Or uh, it you had other options? It, it, it has an effect on the decision of why we use that kind of furnace. Honestly, it's one of the easier furnaces to um, kind of go around places to do demonstrations. Um, originally, that kind of furnace, uh, the way we build it, was more as a um, testing furnace. They would pretty much find a source of iron, build a similar furnace, or a couple of them, run a few smelts to see what kind of quality iron they were getting out of the furnace. And if it was good, they would mine it and bring it back to whatever town and run up to 12, 14, even some bigger furnaces. Um, but it, they were basically building them on the spot so they can see if it was worth mining. And then that's where like the Allaire, the Allaire furnace would be built after they do it. Like right. That style furnace. Right. Because obviously Bethlehem Steel is completely different. Yeah, no, that was a, that was a whole nother thing. But uh, yeah, something like Allaire. Yeah, I'm, I I would uh I would think they would have had some sort of test quality assurance thing, um. But by that time, it was already, you know, the beginning of the industrial revolution. That that furnace was built in uh, the 1830s. Um, oh, okay. So there wasn't quite as much testing. They already knew what they were doing. What did they make out of there? Um. So they actually made uh for the most part it was just pig irons. Um. Alaire was one of the entrepreneurs that um, made a lot of steel for uh, steam engines, for uh, steamboat engines. Sorry, he sent it up to uh, sent a lot of steel up to New York to build uh, steamboats. Yeah, I thought it had something to do with the nautical theme, but I didn't know what. Yeah, so he he did a lot of the the, the steamboat components, um, and actually, unfortunately, he's one of the biggest reasons that life vests are required on all ships. Really? Because one of the reasons that his venture failed in a catastrophic way is one of his steamships actually sunk, and they didn't have life vests on the ship for the passengers. Because at that point, maritime law wasn't a requirement to have those. So, as you can imagine, that didn't go so well. Yeah, it's probably the downfall of Allaire, huh? He made a couple bad investments. Uh, he had an opportunity to go into uh, trains um, and and big oil and chose not to because he wanted to focus on. You know, what's funny about that is they still have the train at the park. You know, that little yeah. train that goes around. Like, yeah. Yeah. And one of his downfalls is he didn't invest in it. <laughs> his yeah. His legacy yeah. as a train as to where they're making money within the state park that's funny. there's quite a bit of irony there um the other kind of downfall to um the whole ironworks village really was um because he was making some of these bad investments he was trying to make a return on his iron mining so that furnace actually ran non-stop for almost two years without repairs usually they would stop it for a few months a year to actually repair the inside reline it Rebrick, whatever it needed, but it actually ran for two years, unmaintained essentially, and it started having issues, and uh, it basically they weren't able to keep using it, and they had to close down the ironworks. Got it. Has it been restored now? Because it doesn't look in disrepair, from what I remember. So they've done a lot of work to, like, um, I guess, restore to a point that it won't fall apart, like beautify it almost. It basically, like it, it would never be able to be functional again as is. Got it. But it, it it also won't fall down. Right. But there, you know, there's a, there's a lot of stuff that's missing on that furnace as well. Like, um, knowing that you've been there, there's that little porthole, uh, towards the top of the furnace. There used to mm-hmm. be a gigantic ramp that went down to uh where the old foundation is in the middle of the field, and that was that whole foundation just housed charcoal. That they were running up the ramp and dumping into the porthole for two years straight. Two years straight. That's crazy. so. When you say porthole, you're not talking about something you see on a ship that's like eight to ten inches of diameter. If you're dumping a wheelbarrow into it, it's like no, it's man- sizable. It's like man sized. Yeah. Like 
don't go too far, Jimmy. You might fall in. I'm sure there's actions there too. I feel I feel like that was an era of no safety features. Oh, you don't want to know how they made the charcoal. Because Alaire, um, he was actually uh he invested in Colliers, who were actually the people that There you uh, go. That's pulled up a picture of it. Yeah. It's great for podcasting. I'm gonna put the <laughs> I'm gonna put the pictures in the reel for this podcast. Relax. <laughs> um, I'm even gonna so go even down there and take my own photos. He was actually leasing out parts of the property to uh, Colliers, who were actually making charcoal locally. Um, and basically, what they would do, they would stack it up in this this huge mound. Um, it's about a thirty foot diameter. Yeah, wow. and then um, basically, once the middle started to kind of burn out and it was running out of oxygen, they had kids climb on top of the mound and jump on it to pack it down. Oh. Well, that wasn't so much, or just to pack it down. It was also, like, once you heard the, the ground crunching underneath you, you knew it was charcoal, not wood. So, yeah, it's it, it's nuts what we got away with. Yeah, it is pretty wild, like, looking back at that stuff, because, like, I've watched shows on, like, the Industrial Revolution, and you've got, like, the, th- the things they did in textile mills was just basically inhumane. Like kids losing hands on a regular basis. Like it's just ridiculous stuff. That's why unions got formed. Yeah, it is. It's kind of sad when you think about it. The way, well, yeah, know. it is. It's, it's, yeah, there's a lot of that around. So with the, with the blooms that you guys make, like what are you guys doing with them afterwards? Like, is there, is there, are you doing something with the product or, or is it just for demonstration purposes? Like what's your. So we use it for some of our own uh, projects that we're working on. Um, we've done some like recreation work that people want uh, very specific matching just to the history of something. So like if, uh, for example, if you have like a historic house from the 17 or 1800s in New Jersey, they, they basically try to get you to recreate it exactly historically accurate. So like there's, there's only limitations as far as what you can do. So yeah, some that's... of the work that we've done has been that way. Yeah. Uh, some of it has just been, you know, stuff that we wanted to do ourselves. Um, and then as the group, we were talking not too long ago about, have you ever heard of the, uh, the Mastermeyer find? It was a, a Viking age uh, toolbox that a farmer in was tilling his fields and hooked into a big chain. Um, it was a forged chain, and he started basically following the chain and came to a wooden crate and opened it up, and there was about 110 artifacts in this box that was like a traveling tradesman, carpenter, blacksmith. There were hammers, anvils, uh, woodworking tools, all sorts of stuff. So we were talking about that would be a cool demonstration box to be able to bring out and be like, Scandinavian furnace, Viking toolbox. That yeah, would be cool. I think we talked about that at camp, and it was that seemed like a, a really cool idea. Yeah, we talked about it a little bit. Um, actually, next week, um, the uh, the team has an event that we're probably going to have to make a couple pieces for. Um, it's actually a little Scandinavian festival thing in uh, North Jersey. Um, I don't know too much about it because I'm not going to be there anymore. <laughs> yeah, it kind of strikes me as odd as a Scandinavian festival in North Jersey. Why? We're melting potting in my friend. I, <laughs> just everybody thinks about wise guys when they think of Jersey. And then we meet Keith and then it's like, oh, yeah, it makes sense. I'm not a wise guy. <laughs> I know a guy. Yeah, oh, but then you also have uh, then you also have Will and myself. I mean, what are we? <laughs> well, my first experience with someone from Jersey was Keith, so that that that's kind of the bar. It's been set there, and it'll take a lot to to bring it back to where it lower. should be. Well, not lower, but just back to where it should be. <laughs> what do you mean where it should be? <laughs> What's well, New Jersey? The bar starts notoriously low. <laughs> I don't know how to take that. Well, okay, Keith, let me ask you. Are you originally from New Jersey? Or are you yeah. one of those Brooklyn, Staten Island guys that came to New Jersey? No, I'm a Jersey guy. 
All right, all right. That that is probably Jersey from Israel. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I was just asking. Why do, do I seem like a New Yorker? No, no. That's that's. I, if the it just depends where you set the bar, you know. Because if you come from Staten Island, you can set it even lower than New Jersey. I'm from Northwest Jersey, <laughs> farm country. Okay, okay. Whereabouts in Northwest Jersey? Uh, Hackettstown. Okay. All of our all of our listeners from all over the world that don't care anything about the nuances of New Jersey. No, no, not at all. Not a bit. We'll save that for the after show. Sure. But that would be cool to make that toolbox. I think that would be a, a cool thing. It would make it would make the smelting more relatable for a lot of people. Most people just see what we're doing and you know, all right, why would I do this? Right. You don't see an end product. Yeah. Yeah. Now you guys had issues this year with the smelt because of the rain. Everybody had issues because of the rain. But you guys did a remelt, you were telling me while you were there, and then produced a different product. Well, so we actually that? we we did actually go through with the smelt. It wasn't as successful as it could have been had it not been raining. Gotcha. But uh, yeah, we you, did guys, actually... you guys had the leaning leaning furnace there for a while. Yeah, yeah, that was a that was a bit scary to be honest. We we've worked with some some janky furnaces before, but as we were building it and firing it, the clay was just washing out of it. Well, at least you knew with the amount of water we had that you weren't going to start anything on fire if it fell over. <laughs> That's true. It would have just went yeah. out. But yeah, no, we we did actually have a. Um, I guess you could call it successful um, in terms of our standards that it was not very successful, but I guess you can call it successful in terms of other people's standards. Um, we did actually make about a 10 pound bloom um, that we then partly ran through a, a remelt furnace the day after on Sunday um, where we ended up with a piece of steel about the same weight as the bloom we made the day before. Is that, is that typical or not typical? Well, so yeah, I'm going to jump in here. The The remelt furnace, what we usually do with that is we'll take all the pieces that fall off during the initial hammering of taking the bloom out of the furnace. Right. So there's always like little chunks that don't adhere. That's what we typically will run through the remelt furnace and then pull another piece of, of steel out of it instead of iron. So the difference between steel and iron is steel has carbon Right. Um, between... 0.3% and 2% whereas iron is lower than 0.3%. Got it. So how how are you getting the 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 like the carbon content into it? Like what are you doing differently with the remelt that gives you the carbon? Well, you actually have um there's a few there's a lot of factors that actually play into it, but part of it is also having um uh your your tweer, which is your your air source essentially, um coming in at a different angle, which means you're getting a different type of burn from the charcoal. That's actually where it's getting the carbon from. Um, that okay. affects it a lot. And the other thing is where you have your, um, essentially your your um, reduction, oxidation, and carburization zones. Uh, it's a different ratio than you have in the full stack um, furnace. So you're actually able to collect more carbon because there's a larger carburization zone, even though it's a smaller furnace. Okay. So you're, you end up with like, from what I've dealt with in like gas forges, like carburization means you've got a lot of fuel and not as much air generally. Is that the same kind of scenario you would have in what you're doing? So that would be like a reducing atmosphere where you have a lot of fuel, not as much air, and then okay. more air and not as much fuel would be an oxidizing. So similar, right. yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the idea with that is you're basically leaving it under the airflow where it's still very hot, but you're leaving it with the ability to just pick up that carbon as it sits there and soaks. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes sense to me. <laughs> There's a lot of little science that goes into it that um, we could probably sit here and talk for three days about. <laughs> yeah both of our hosts would be asleep if we did that yeah well it yeah. happen yeah yeah now when you pull it out and you're tapping it down what's actually happening then you're just consolidating it but 
you aren't not like wailing on it or anything. So what's happening when you pull it out? It's it's mainly soft taps, like you were saying. Um, and actually, I don't know if you saw this year, we brought big wooden mallets because the wood against the wood of the stump is a lot softer of a contact. <clears throat> You're basically trying to drive all the impurities off of it and get the the metal to adhere to itself. Um, because when you pull that bloom out, it's like 3,000 degrees, maybe a little less, but it's never going to be that hot ever again. Right. So essentially equating it to what anyone who hasn't seen this process, you're basically kneading the dough. Sort of, yeah. yeah. You can think about it. as you're kneading it, impurities are falling off of it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, basically, when it comes out of the furnace or the remelt furnace, whatever her whatever we have going on, it's, um, it's very porous. It's kind of marshmallowy, right? So, um, we're basically, basically doing a giant forge weld. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. That makes sense. Um, and but as it's, it's coming together, kneading, essentially yeah. kneading the dough. Yeah. <laughs> You're basically popping all the bubbles in it without smashing it. Yeah, pretty much. And then when you start the smelt, or whatever you call the process, right? How much, I mean, you guys got a 10-pound chunk out of it, right? How much of that ore that you put in there are you putting in to get 10 pounds? So we really didn't put a whole lot into that furnace before we decided to call it for safety reasons. I think we only charged a little under 30 pounds. So it really... With the taconite that we use for demonstrations, it really doesn't take much to start forming a bloom. Is that is that a product of the taconite that you're using that's been pelletized? Partly, is it yes. The type of taconite, like what, like what's the causation that you don't need a lot? Well, so the taconite um, is somewhere around eighty something percent iron or uh, usable iron um, within the ore, whereas um, some of the other ores we use, such as the magnetite, the hematite, um, you have a lot less usable iron or attainable iron, I guess, within the ore. So if we're getting, say, a 50% yield with taconite, with a natural ore, an unprocessed ore, we'd be getting around a 20%, sometimes 25% yield, depending on where we get it from. Got it. So a lot less. Yeah. A lot less and then what happens to that other 80 percent? is that just what's at the base of, of the of the furnace that you guys build is it just kind of like hang out there does it burn off so in in most cases when we're not running the taconite we get about 30 to 40 pounds of ore into the furnace um right. and at that point there are times where we're doing demonstrations and we're listening to the furnace and you know we're talking to people and we'll pause and look at the furnace because we can actually hear the slag lapping in the uh, the airflow. So it's gotten to the point where it's built up all the way up to where that air pipe comes in. And we can hear it kind of like bubbling almost. Hmm. Um, and at that point, we have to go in and either use like a bar or something else to pop a hole in the bottom of the furnace and let that liquid glass slag or lava, whatever you want to describe it as, it has to all drain out. And then is there a use case for, for that leftover? Like, is there another industry that takes that and uses that for something else? Um, or is it purely just put it back in the earth and just let it be? Well, I've heard two different ideas on that. I haven't experimented with it myself, but I, one of the historic examples is the Romans, uh, after, with all the smelting that they did, they had slag piles, you know, that, that uh, were huge. There's another um, another guy who does smelting uh, up in Canada. His name's Daryl Markowitz. One of his buddies uh, uh, that he does this work with, Neil, has been kind of developing an idea of making uh, glass beads, like uh, Viking beadwork out of the slag. Interesting. So that's a totally different style furnace. And that that's actually, that's really cool work because it, it's not a direct heat he's basically doing lamp work with charcoal i don't get that reference i'm sure most of our listeners don't but that so is la- cool. <laughs> lamp work is like where you have um like the oxypropane or oxyacetylene torches 
right. and you have a stick of glass. And as you put the stick of glass into the oxypropane, it starts to ball up on itself. Oh, I've seen that. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So okay. you can make beads and other other jewelry type things with that. I have so seen he's that. basically doing that with clay and charcoal. Interesting. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, for the most part, the uh, the slag that comes out is um, basically the impurities. It's silicas, um, all sorts of uh, basically nasty stuff that we don't really want in the iron anyways. Right. But I didn't know if it was utilized for something else. Uh, I'm sure you're making beer, like when you're making beer, all the byproduct of beer then gets fed to like horses. Like it's an ongoing ecosystem, you know? Right. I didn't know if there was something like the byproduct of the smelting gets used in a different industry. Not that your guys is did just in general, if the byproduct of, but you know, that's what they feed Tom with. Oh, oh, (laughs) okay. That's why he got so big. He would probably eat it. <laughs> I wouldn't put it past him. <laughs> I think so Will's Keith, choking over there. Keith, you mentioned beer. Do you brew beer? No. I spend a lot of time in breweries though. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think most of us around this uh conversation could say the same thing. I've taken yeah. like hundred and fifty. I mean, for a while in New Jersey you had to take the tour and I probably took a hundred brew tours. So Well that's just so you get the excuse to do the tasting afterwards, right? Correct, yeah, but it yeah. used to be that you had to do it. Now you can just go there and buy beer. But I always find it interesting, like, who takes the byproduct of different industries. And mm. I I mean, every brewery gives it to something different, but uh, most of them give it to, like, horses or something, you know? Farms take it for whatever reason. But there's byproducts of other stuff, like people take sawdust from people to make things out of or, or, or line their garden beds or put out in their... Um, I know uh, nurseries will take it to, to keep the weeds down in their nursery. They'll take sawdust and put that down like a like a fine mulch. That way it's gone the next year, like it biodegrades within a year. It's not like mulch that's going to take longer. So I was just wondering if what you guys, like your byproduct was used for something like that. I'm sure there is an industry. I don't know on what scale, but I'm sure there is some sort of industry that, that has a use for it even if it's just an additive to concrete or black tar. I, I don't, I don't, I don't know. It could right. just be <laughs> something completely useless, honestly, but I'm sure somebody has a use for it. I mean, this is America. It's probably put in our food at some point. So there you go. <laughs> uh, how do you think you get your iron in your diet? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I didn't think that what I didn't think the tiny, the tiny bit, the tiny bit that you guys were using had to go somewhere. I just meant like in general, like from the process of smelting. But Oh, no. In, in our case, it sits in buckets around my house until I get to a point where I'm sick of looking at it. <laughs> and then you bring it to the dump? And then it just goes away somehow. You got a guy? I got a guy. It's New Jersey. <laughs> it's Jersey. I, I Forget got about it. No, that's Brooklyn. Yeah. It's all the same yeah. thing to me. We're not taking that insult. <laughs> I mean, there's not really much of a difference anymore. Wow. That turnpike yeah. really pulled everybody south. But anyways, yeah, no, I'm, I'm sure somebody has a use for it. The thing is, um, nobody really does smelting on a large scale. So, and even blast furnaces are starting to uh, kind of disappear. It's all going to uh, electro furnaces, arc furnaces, basically. So... I don't really know how much slag those actually produce. Hmm. So I, I did I did some Googling here while you guys were talking. And it's the first thing that pops up for uses for iron smelting slag is for coarse aggregate and concretes, use in road road materials, ballast and sources of phosphates for fertilizer. So it's kind of what I thought. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you're on hmm. you're on the right track. I actually never did any of the research into that. I just kind of took a couple guesses into the wind. Well, you were right. You're a smarter <laughs> man than I. Held that. Well, that's similar to the clinker then for the chart or for the uh, the coal forges. Historically, they would just use them to fill potholes and roads. Yeah, that makes sense. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. It's essentially the same thing. It's just all the impurities melting out of the uh, coal instead of iron. 
Yeah. Interesting. So what else you got for us, gentlemen? I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm kind of starting to get more into traditional blacksmithing again. But other than that, I, I'm, I'm actually kind of happy. I'm getting away from blades because that's what I was doing for a long time. I mean, it looks like you're a heavy-duty woodworker by the shop you're sitting in. Oh, so the cool part is about my family. Uh, we're all very skilled craftsmen, whether it's me and my brother, my dad, my mom. Everyone has a trade that they're involved in. So my mother does um, embroidery and sewing. Uh, my dad, basically, our whole lives, we did woodworking. Um, mm. So we grew up doing you know, furniture and home repairs and that's that's kind of how i got my hands dirty and, and you know initially um and then i like to joke around that i said oh, i don't really like wood splinters let me get into metal work like mm. metal splinters aren't way worse yeah so yeah, but it, <laughs> i had that nice well-rounded kind of exposure very cool what about you l dad you do anything other than metalworking? uh well i dabble in quite a few things uh, right now, I'm not really doing much of any working. <laughs> right. Um, I do want to talk about that in the after show, though. Oh, me being here. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a little bit of a of a, of a hot topic. I feel like it's probably not uh, the best for the show. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah. No. Uh. Mostly, I do so, um, traditional iron working. A little bit of architectural. Um. I do dabble with um, some other metals, uh, some silver, some brass, bronze, stuff like that. Um, I mean, I'm a mechanic by trade, oh, so cool. uh, I just do a lot of hands-on things, I guess. Keeping those hands busy. Uh, on the Working Hands podcast. On the Working Hands <laughs> podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. I will say... Eldad, you have kept Will quite quiet throughout this main show. I thought he would be rip-raring about something crazy. Well, so it's actually kind of funny you say that. Um, Will has had quite a long weekend. Um, I flew out early Friday morning, and later that day, Will went over to my house to keep my fiancé company, along with her brother, who joined in on Saturday. So he's also had quite a long weekend. <laughs> I'm sure he's just as tired as I am. Yeah, that that was. They actually took over my. That was the thing. That was rude. They took over my forge while I was gone. That's perfect. I made (laughs) I made sure I moved all the tools like six inches to the right. Yeah, just so he's like reaching for it, grabbing (laughs) something else. He let my dog chew on the horn of an anvil. Ooh, your dog is kind of dumb though. So I mean, he would have done it anyway. I was gonna say like that's. But I had it elevated. He didn't chew on it elevated. <laughs> all right. All right. Hold on. I, there, there's a lot to absorb there. <laughs> I, don't know what, I don't know what's happening. Tony, let's thank those patrons. Yeah. Yeah. Before any dogs get injured. Chew all right. On an anvil. <laughs> what is going on? Oh, I'm sure, if, I'm sure if his dog could have, he would have picked up the anvil and ran away with it. Oh man! When, when we were building Eldad's shop, you know, we had a bunch of four by fours laying around. He, he has a pit bull that would come over, grab a four by four, eight foot long, and just take off. <laughs> oh, he likes big sticks. Where in New Jersey are you guys? Uh, so I'm up in Bergen County. Okay, and I'm in Union County. You're in Union County, and you have a power hammer at your shop. <laughs> Uh, yeah <laughs> sort of so f- 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 for people who don't know Bergen and Union counties I mean we're the most densely populated state in the union there's houses it, everywhere you you don't have land power around you your house is right next to somebody else's house your poor neighbors oh yeah uh, no they hate us that's fantastic it's <laughs> fantastic <laughs> You um, guys are the ones on the block that everyone else on the block talks about. Y- oh. Yeah. I mean, the only neighbor that doesn't hate us um, is right next to us. Uh, he brews beer and makes moonshine. So that echoes out the uh, the hammering. Yeah. 
Will goes out there, fires up the hammer, and the whole neighborhood's like, uh, Will's at it again, guys. Will's in <laughs> it's funny you say that because like, if, if I go away for a week or whatever, I'll come back and some of my neighbors will literally be walking past my house and be like, I haven't heard the tinging recently. Where have you guys been? <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> so they got a good sense of humor about it, but yeah, they, they automatically know when that forge starts up. Yeah, they probably think they're going deaf when you when you go away for a week. <laughs> the ringing is stopped. <laughs> they go to the doctor. Is my ear okay? All right, Tony, let's thank those patrons. All right, let's go. So we have uh, Corey of Odyssey CNC, Christy of Twisted Twine, Annette of 513 Woodworks, Full Steam Designs by Chris Powell, Lillian Archer Photography, David Beckwith Makes, NB Woodfinery. In our top tier, we have Eastbroke Studios, Danelle Smith-Christian, Brian Drennan, Lawrence of MaritimeNiceSupply.com, Ed Johns of ButtJoints.com, Adam of Uncle Sam Metalworks, Vincent Ferrari of Digitally Creative, Brian Housewart of Workfort Podcast, Artigino Osorio, Matt of Wooden Mustache, Brad of Brad's Customs, David and Joanna at Wido Works, Chad of Chad's Custom Creations, Ryan of Gnomehammer Forge, David of DW Wood Builds, Matt of First Duke Construction, and last but not least, Daniel and Drizzy. Thank you all. Thank you all. So what else, gentlemen? You got any uh, final words before we head on over to the after show? I besides looking forward to seeing everyone again at Makers Camp next year. Yeah, uh, I mean, hopefully we, busy. Have, hopefully we can see each other outside of Makers Camp and not just the one time a year. Yeah, I got to find out when the Scandinavian Festival is. Maybe I'll make a trip. Uh, that's we'll twenty second. Well, all right, so Sunday. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Which will be this past Sunday as this airs. So, um, yeah, yeah. What's your next festival after that? So usually kind of end end of October, we, we start kind of winding down for the season. Um, take a few months to recuperate a little bit and actually process some of the bloom that's sitting around. Because at this point, I'm going to say hesitantly, I probably have about 250 pounds of bloom iron in my shop. Wow. That's a lot. From the previous year's festivals and everything, so... During the winter, you know, it's good forging weather. I just process it all down, and then I have bars. And those bars will soon be a Viking toolbox. Or sold or whatever, you know, whatever comes of them. Nice. We've uh, we've, we've gotten into selling more of them lately. That's cool. Do people buy it because of the history of what it is and that you guys did it and all that? Or is it just like I have a bar of steel you can buy for forging? No, I mean, there's a multitude of reasons. I mean, nobody's just buying it just because they can forge it, because it's honestly not really the cheapest thing. <laughs> um, I would assume it's very there, expensive. There's a multitude of... It's fairly expensive for what it is. Um, yeah. It's pretty fairly priced, but, you know, I mean, you people are... Uh, worth. Yeah. Exactly. Um, it's also would be... Would it forge... I, I don't know I'm asking. Would it forge similar to, like, a wrought iron? similar yeah like you're at weld basically at welding heat the entire time you're working it once very it's a, close yeah you're you're getting pretty close i mean it also depends on which bloom it actually came out of um they, they differ each time a little bit you know in terms of uh carbon content some of the some of the stuff that ended up inside of it and uh stuff like that so each one is a little bit different but for the most part um, yeah, it, it works similarly to, uh, wrought iron. Um, we have had quite a few actually that, uh, have just been ridiculously high carbon. Um, not always intentionally, but that's just how it works out. How do you test the carbon? Uh, we've actually had a few pieces that we've sent out. Uh, Will can probably tell you more about that. So, uh, there's two different ways that we generally test it. The easy and cheaper way is spark testing. So you hit it on a sander or a grinding wheel. And depending on the best way to explain it is if it's long, straight uh, sparks that don't have any tails or explosions or whatever you want to call it, um, that's usually a lower carbon, uh, more like a wrought iron. If it's a higher carbon, it'll be long, like long-ish uh sparks 
but then they'll have a lot of bursts off of it. Like, you know, um, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. It's, it's difficult to explain unless you're literally seeing it and say, okay, bursts, I get that. And then if you end up with cast iron, which generally we're trying to avoid, but if you end up with that, then it's a lot shorter sparks and a ton of bursts. So that's the easiest way to do it. Um, we've also been fortunate enough to have a friend who works for uh, Carpenter Steel, and uh, we were able to send out a couple pieces for lab testing with uh, laser emission spectroscopy and XRF. So we were able to basically get a whole breakdown of the exact chemistry that was coming out of the ore that we were using, the bloomery iron, and then that same bloomery iron processed in a remelting furnace. So it gave us a, a good spread of what we were starting with, what our midline was, and then what our higher carbon option was. Very cool. I mean, it's up here for me above my head, but it's very cool. <laughs> well, I told you I was going to try to keep the science to a minimum. Yeah, and I appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, there's there's quite a lot of science that actually goes into it. And you really wouldn't think so because really our team is a bunch of idiots. <laughs> I wouldn't say that. You guys seem pretty knowledgeable well, now. <laughs> Get a few uh, beer into them. See what happens. Oh, I yeah, we talk well. we talk nice, but uh. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what's the old saying? Actions speak louder than words. Yeah, we speak real loud. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! Uh, so why don't you guys tell us where everyone can find you guys? So, uh, as far as the, the smelting team, you can find us on Facebook or Instagram, and hopefully soon enough we'll be on, uh, on YouTube as Smelt Team 6. Very cool. Do you guys have cool. personal accounts, or that doesn't matter? We all do. We, um, we usually keep that to our, our personal forging, so you can okay. find me on uh, Werbin1 on Instagram, or Eldad has his own. What, your Serpent Head Forge? Yeah. Yeah. So. All right. Yeah, so. Yeah. Serpent Hen Check it out. Get in contact. What was yours again? Yeah. No. I w, mean, uh, w Urban 1. Very w original. Werbin. Werbin 1. The Werbin 1. Yeah. I mean, uh, we might actually end up having a website for the uh, Smelt team pretty soon. Um, my fiance is actually a, a software engineer. So she's working on something between HTML and all sorts of things they don't actually know. It's a bunch of mumbo jumbo. Good though. Let her do it. That's perfect. Yeah. It's perfect. Yeah. All right. We're going to close out the show. Head on over to the after show. Uh, we got a couple of housekeeping things. If you're a patron of ours, uh, you are automatically entered into Gnome Hammer's giveaway for the month. He's giving away another hammer this month. Uh, if you don't want to be a patron of ours, you can become a patron directly of Gnome Hammer and get your tickets there. And there's other, other podcasts he does this with, like the Work For It podcast. Um, he gives away one every month. This is coming out before the end of the month. Now's the time to buy some tickets. If you don't want to be a patron or don't believe in Patreon, that's fine. You could buy tickets directly through that. His hammers are awesome. We recommend it. I assume Will and Eldad also recommend Gnome Hammer hammers. I have a few of his own or his, his hammers myself. And, uh, of course, you know, I always like to challenge Ryan. So I just ordered like a 12 pound sledge from him. Oh, you had an up Tony on the sledge. I too like to challenge Ryan. I don't know if you saw his release of the uh, French pattern. That was me. Oh, nice. <laughs> I have, I, I, I have his original pattern. I have two of those. And then I have, I don't know what they were, but like the smushed in the middle ones. And then I had yeah. one, he started to clean it up before he, he's at this new look. Um, so I have three of his hammers. I like. Right. I do like that new look, the stone wash. Yeah, the stone wash sure. is awesome. I, I have one of those. Yeah. The funny yeah, thing is our, cool. our team, we, we, we like to, to give each other stupid challenges. <laughs> Ryan is always up for it, though. That's. Oh, yeah. I mean, everybody here is, to be honest. Um, I mean, we just have stupid ideas, and for some reason, we all agree to do it. <laughs> well, right now, Tom and I, for the Winter Nights Festival um, next week, have challenged each other to make a Viking sax to show up to the festival with. I don't know nice. what that is. It's, it's the, a blade. The, yeah, it's a blade. It's the small, um, like, utility knife, basically. Got it. 
Very cool. This is coming Good from the guy who earlier in the podcast said he was getting away from blades. But that doesn't well, mean I'm not going to ever do them. When you're challenged, you're challenged. You know, you got to rise to the challenge. No, you're right. You're right. <laughs> the the gauntlet was thrown. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's head on t- over to that after show. Uh, if you want to leave a five-star review, that would be awesome. A five-star rating would be awesome. If you want to share the show, that's always epic. Um, we, we, we would appreciate any and all of it. If you want to find Tony, he's at Woodland Iron. I'm at Blackthorn Concepts. Both of us can be found at Working Hands Podcast on Instagram, Working Hands 3 on TikTok. Or if you have an email, you can send it to us at workinghandspodcast at gmail.com. With that, we're heading over to the after show. We'll talk to you guys next week. Later. Bye.